A reverend is shot dead in front of 300 people during his niece's funeral. Yet there were allegedly no eyewitnesses to the crime. And the man who confessed to the shooting was found not guilty by a jury. What is the story behind the strange killing of Reverend Willie Maxwell? Welcome, welcome, welcome into our first ever mini-sode of Killing, Missing, Hidden. I've decided to start doing these shorter episodes on topics that for one reason or another won't work as a full episode or aren't really completely within the spirit of the show, in my opinion. There's not going to be a regular release schedule for these. They'll just pop up as little surprises for you every now and then. Okay, well, that's enough intro. Let's get straight to the show. Now, if you do a Google search for Willie Maxwell, you will find that Harper Lee, the famous author of To Kill a Mockingbird, is all sorts of intertwined with his story. See, the story of this killing was going to be her In Cold Blood, the book that she had assisted Truman Capote in writing. She spent hundreds of hours researching this case, interviewing witnesses, and meticulously typing out her draft manuscript. Those few who actually saw it thought it would exceed both To Kill a Mockingbird and In Cold Blood in quality. But sadly, Harper Lee either never finished the book or never sent it to her publisher. The story would remain untold in book format until Casey Kep published it under the name Furious Hours last year. But let's focus on Willie here. He was born in rural Alabama in 1925 and had a very uneventful upbringing. He served two tours in World War II, rising to the rank of sergeant. In 1947, he returned home to Alabama, married, and began working on a series of jobs while slowly honing his craft as a Baptist preacher. He was known to his friends as Reverend Maxwell. Despite working in textile factories and pulping wood, he always looked immaculate. Frankly, for a black man from humble beginnings living in Alabama during such a turbulent time, he had a pretty good life. But on August 3, 1970, tragedy struck. Willie's wife, Mary Lou, was found beaten to death in a car on the side of a country road. Police believe the assailant tried to strangle her, but had to resort to brute force to finish the job. Her body was a mess. She had a broken jaw, a dislocated nose, even part of her ear had been ripped off. Naturally, Reverend Maxwell was the first and only person of interest in this investigation. When police began digging into his life, they found that he had many female friends throughout the town and was spending more money on his lovers than he made from his jobs. He was deep in debt and not making any progress in digging his way out. Mary Lou was last seen leaving a girlfriend's house as Reverend Maxwell needed a ride because his car had broken down at one of his female friend's houses. One big ol' oddity the police found. Despite having no money to her name, Mary Lou had several life insurance policies with the reverend named as the sole beneficiary and each and every one of them were bought by the reverend including one so new 
he hadn't even paid the first renewal fee of $12. Now, for some reason, it took the state a while to indict Reverend Maxwell, but it only took a jury a short time to find him not guilty. Mary Lou's girlfriend, Doris Anderson, recanted her testimony at trial about her conversations with Mary Lou. Shortly thereafter, her husband died, and she immediately married the reverend. Rumors swirled that Doris's husband died after drinking whiskey laced with embalming fluid. Now, this marriage didn't last long either. Sadly, the Reverend's Doris was found beaten to death in a car on the side of a country road three years after they had married. Huh. So, I guess we can say this guy just has no luck with women, right? Now, fortunately, you don't have to worry. Reverend Maxwell, he had taken out a life insurance policy on his second wife. Well, he had taken out 17 life insurance policies on Doris. He collected over a half million dollars from her death. The Reverend's brother, Columbus, also died at the same time in odd fashion. Alcohol poisoning, to be exact. The Reverend soon became quite the expert in purchasing life insurance. He bought policies for his mother, his brothers, his aunts, his nieces, his nephews, and all listing himself as the beneficiary, of course. And he seemed to have an uncanny ability to protect which of his relatives would suffer a grisly death. The community began circulating rumors that the great reverend was actually a voodoo priest. He even had a voodoo room in his house. And his neighbors would often dash off their porches and hide inside whenever they saw the reverend passing through their neighborhood. They thought he was bad news and claimed he was connected to the infamous Seven Sisters of New Orleans. He was known to help parents discipline unruly children by tying them to pecan trees claiming it would drive the evil spirits right out of the children's bodies. He would also help prote protect people's homes by painting their doors in blood. As Harper Lee put it just so perfectly in a letter to a journalist, he might have not have believed in what he preached, he might not have believed in voodoo, but he had a profound and abiding belief in life insurance. The Reverend rarely faced legal problems after his first trial since he retained the services of Tom Radney, a gifted trial attorney and former state senator. He was able to smooth out any misunderstandings before things got out of hand. He also helped ensure the Reverend collected on the insurance policies he had taken out in exchange for, you know, a small cut. Locals started calling Radney's law firm the Maxwell House. In 1976, Reverend Maxwell's nephew, James Hicks, was found dead from a single-car accident. Now, accident may be a strong word here because the vehicle really wasn't banged up. It was kind of sitting next to a tree, and there was no obvious trauma to James. Again, police don't conduct a real investigation. But the next death in Reverend Maxwell's family was the tipping point. In 1977, his niece, then 16-year-old Shirley Ann Ellington, was found dead underneath her own vehicle. A quick glance at the scene suggested she was trying to change a flat tire when the jack slipped, though not one person in the community really believed that. They knew the Reverend had killed her and staged it to look like an accident. When the Reverend Maxwell called his attorney, this time, Radney said no. 
He wasn't going to help him anymore. He felt like he was going too far. The funeral was held the following Saturday. Robert Louis Burns, who was kin to Shirley, raced home from Ohio to attend the funeral. Burns was a former member of the Army and served in Vietnam. Like so many from his generation, he struggled with PTSD, though back then no one knew exactly what the issue was. Burns admits he was angry when he showed up at the funeral and said maybe he ought not to have been there. When Burns got up to view the body, he noticed, as he returned to his seat, that the reverend of all people was seated right behind him. Without thinking, Burns drew his Beretta and shot the reverend three times in the face at close range. He died nearly instantly. The 300-plus mourners bolted for the exit. Burns' brother, who was a local deputy, pulled Burns to the side and held him. He was taken into custody, but meanwhile his brother decided to hire the best lawyer he could find to defend him, Tom Radney. While Burns was concerned about Maxwell's man representing him, everyone in the community told him he would be fine. He wasn't going to prison. Quick legal note here. While Burns, while Radney normally wouldn't be permitted ethically from representing Burns, since it would introduce the possibility that Radney would have to use information against the Reverend that he learned about the Reverend from representing him before in the defense of Burns, the Alabama State Bar actually gave him a pass and said, no, you're fine, there won't be any conflict of interest here. Little odd. Now at trial, there was no witnesses who were willing to testify against Burns. And Radney really didn't argue the facts. To him, it was undisputed that Burns had shot the Reverend at close range three times. Instead, Radney's approach was to hire a psychiatrist to evaluate Burns, who reached the opinion that Burns was struggling with his time from Vietnam and likely was suffering from a flashback when the shooting occurred. The prosecutor tried in vain to paint Burns as a cold-blooded killer and a one-man lynch mob, but Radney stuck to his guns. Yes, Burns shot the man. He just didn't remember doing it because of his traumas. The jury deliberated for an entire 20 minutes before finding Burns not guilty by mental defect. The courtroom actually erupted in applause when the verdict was read. Now, by law, that doesn't mean he walks free. It means he has to be committed to a state psychiatric facility. So the judge sent him over to Bryce Hospital in Tuscaloosa for treatment. But Burns was released after only five weeks, with the doctor saying he was fit as a fiddle. And with that, Burns was truly a free man. In total, five of the Reverend's relatives died, and he happened to have insurance on all five. He had put fear out into the community. No one trusted the Baptist voodoo preacher who knew he could easily get away with murder, and he knew how to make himself rich. All in all, one of the oldest legal defenses in history worked for Burns in this case, though. That man, the Reverend, just needed killing. All right, well, that ends our first minisode. I hope you enjoyed this bizarre tale. It's one I've wanted to cover since we started the podcast, but I never made, felt comfortable making it an entire episode. Number one, the facts are what they are, and number two, there's nothing to analyze here. It's just a neat story about a southern serial killer who met his end at the wrong end of a handgun. 
Now, if you enjoyed this little mini surprise, please let me know. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or minisodes, just send us an email or message me through one of the multiple social media platforms we've got. And please take a moment to join our Facebook group. Right now, we're already altering the future episode lineups based on the feedback I'm getting. So please make an effort, look for Killing Missing Hidden, and from once you find our page, you can join the private group from there. There are three questions you have to answer, and you have to answer them to join the group. I'm not laying just anybody in. I want people who listen to the show to join us. If you want to hit us up on Instagram, it's kmh.podcast. We're fairly active on there, and we do a lot of stupid things on there, so you may find it entertaining. All right, we're going to keep to our regular Tuesday schedule. Like I said, this was just a little treat. Maybe we'll do another one before the month's over. But thank you all for tuning in today and hope you all have a fun and wonderful weekend. Thank you for listening to Killing, Missing, Hidden. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and share. Questions? Email us at info at kmhpodcast.com.